Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. I want to introduce to you Dr. Richard Kuby, who is the CEO and founder of Prairie Spine and Pain Institute in Peoria, Illinois. Um, he has a very interesting piece, or he had a very interesting piece last week in Newsweek regarding um, healthcare reform and the wrong direction it's taking and where we need to go. Uh, Dr. Kuby, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on, Ed. And I was just telling you uh, that you know I was I'm a recent uh, I'm a recent power user of uh, the, the healthcare system here. And, sure. You, know, you have to work through insurance. Now I don't have <clears throat> Medicare or Medicaid, um, so I'm working through private insurance. And there's a lot of issues that go through this. In your piece, though, you're talking about something very specifically about how healthcare prior healthcare reforms have made things worse, especially in terms of consolidating the market in, you know, for providers rather than having a proliferation of providers you know, competing. And I've talked about this ever since 2008, 2009, when you know, Obamacare, when they were first off during the campaign in 2008, when they were competing visions of healthcare reform and then 2009, 2010. Um, now that was overall, there's been other changes in Medicare and Medicaid that you're flagging here, but basically it's 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 of a piece, right? I mean, what we're doing is we're incentivizing consolidation when we really should be incentivizing, um, you know, decentralization of these tasks. Well, that would be my thought and approach. I, I generally believe freedom's a good idea and competition is a good idea, and certainly if you remove both of those, then you have a monopoly and. Monopolies don't tend to increase value or or decrease cost in the process of that. So uh, I think some of the thought process with your discussion of Obamacare, I think certainly a lot of the goal was to centralize care. And I think it's doing a rather good job of that. Uh, if you are a recent sampler of health care, you've probably seen that these small independent practices are much fewer in nature. Private uh, primary care physicians, much fewer in nature. And so you kind of get thrown into this big industrial medical superplex and, and there's no real savings generally or value to be had there because they're you know just full of administrative garbage uh, a lot of times that soaks up a lot of resources. You know, and you write, and we're what? We are now 13 years. <laughs> past Obamacare's passage, right? It was in early right. 2010. And Obamacare was passed specifically to deal with healthcare costs, right? I mean, that was right. the way it was told, at least. It was to, to deal with right. healthcare costs. And Dr. Kuby, in your piece in Newsweek, you mentioned this Pew poll um, about how rising healthcare costs are still a major concern for American voters. You know, 54% of Republicans, 73% of Democrats cite this. I, I would say as we get older, probably if you look at the age demographics, it's even worse, right? Um, right. We're an aging population. And, you know, uh, I don't want to call myself an old man, but, you know, obviously I've needed a little bit more <laughs> maintenance work sure. over the last few years. And so, yeah, this has become a very big concern for me. Um, and, we're 13 years into this experiment and it doesn't appear to have worked the centralization part of it. Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, if, if you're looking at what it's stated or advertised goals, I would agree. Uh, you certainly 
I think based on some general ways of structure, I, I think what has occurred probably could have been forecast rather easily. You know, you, you have a variety of pieces of the system. You know, the centralization is fairly easy to forecast. You know, if you take a, a primary care physician and you add this additional bump, so if somebody takes and puts hospital X sign on the front door of my office, all of a sudden I get 60% plus more revenue for every office visit that comes through here. Well, you know, there's really no more cost or anything else that's going into this. So that provides an advantage for a hospital system to be able to acquire primary medical offices. When you consider that for every dollar in a primary medical office, there are $13 downstream for the hospital system, it's very lucrative for them to acquire these primary care offices because then they control imaging, they control specialty referrals, they control a lot of these other things. So the consolidation is removing competition. And then on the other side of the equation, you have insurance. And so if you set up this sort of predetermined margin, if you will, for insurance being, you know, say 15%, well, an insurance company is beholden to the purchasers of that insurance, but they're also beholden to shareholders. And shareholders are interested in having higher profits, as are the executives. And so if I have a fixed margin, the only way I can see profit, the actual dollar amount go up, is to actually have costs go up. I have to build administrative superplexes, things that soak up dollars and things so that now I'm going through more dollars so that you know my 15% is 15% of 2 million instead of 1 million. And so I think really we're seeing exactly what one might have been able to expect if, if you really dug through the numbers and through the data. And I, I mean, just to play devil's advocate here for a little bit. Sure. The, the trade-off on consolidation and it really doesn't make any difference what industry we're talking about. Certainly, it's true of, of the healthcare industry. Uh, the benefit of consolidation is supposedly efficiency, right? Uh, we hear this over and over again. Well, yes, it, you know, it does this, it does this, but things become a lot more efficient, and therefore they cost less over time. Have we seen that? Has there been any, any evidence at all in the healthcare industry that this consolidation has actually uh, transformed? Um, uh, through efficiency, uh, you know, I mean, I transform is the wrong word, has produced efficiencies that lower costs because, frankly, I'm not seeing it. And some of the data that you're showing in this Newsweek article isn't showing it. I just want to address this, though, to make sure maybe we're missing something here. I don't think you are missing anything because, just as you suggest, if I'm going to a hospital, so I'm a small private practice spying practice. And so I don't have the benefit of redundancies that you get from economy of scale. So my x-ray technician spends time doing medical assistant work in my office because I have to have an x-ray tech. Okay, well, that's probably about double the cost per hour for that individual. If I'm at a hospital system, all my imaging people do only imaging. My medical assistants do only medical assistant work. So I, I have the benefit of economy of scale. So theoretically, it should actually cost less to provide basic, say, office setting work in a, ho a hospital-owned group. So then why then do they argue that it's more expensive and they need to charge 60% more for the same visit? That just sits diametrically in opposition. And if you think about the efficiency, I mean, again, there, you wouldn't have ambulatory surgery centers really wouldn't exist, you know, in many ways if that was the case. 
uh, you know, physicians, certainly ambulatory surgical centers, by and large, are far more efficient than the hospitals. And these right. are small, independently run organizations. And so, in fact, pay, you know, studies show that patient satisfaction rates are higher in those smaller facilities as well. And I think the reason is because it's the reason that not everybody buys the same brand of paper towels. It's the reason not everybody buys the same brand of automobile. Different people have different desires, wishes, concerns, and you need different levels of care for different people. And so when you're consolidating, you're creating this system where it's one size fits all and actually one size fits nobody at the end of the day. And so your value goes down, your price goes up. That's exactly what we've seen with Obamacare overall. And you're talking about it in, in a little bit narrower terms here, uh, talking about specifically the uh, a two-tier um Medicare reimbursement policy that is right. creating the financial incentives for consolidation. And, and you've been talking about this a little bit already uh, through right. our discussion here. But this is coming from this is coming from a Medicare, it, it's it's government regulation, right? This is this is an incentive that's being set by the Medicare system. And maybe I should ask you this. How influential is Medicare policy on the rest of the healthcare industry? I don't know. That there's a whole lot more considerable. than considerable. Yeah, because because considerable. there's a lot of people in that system. The CMS system is very very large. When policies right. get set there, even though they don't necessarily apply to private practice, they they uh, you know other uh, you know people who are paying other uh, through other means. I mean, the policies just sort of, they're the big dog in the room, right? So they just overwhelm it. Right. Well, I think it's a lot of things, right? So, I mean, as you say, the CMS sets it and, and realistically, they just, they set the value, I mean, is what they do. So once they set the value, that's what the reimbursement is. And that's just their discretion. But when you go out into the regular part of the sector, um, your Medicare serves as a guideline, not just because of their size, but um, anytime you're trying to set pricing, if you're using the current system as it is, where you're doing top-down pricing instead of bottom-up, uh, you know, if you're just trying to create this arbitrary top-down pricing, you need to have some type of standard. And so CMS creates a very good, uh, I guess, uh, political cover, if you will, for Blue Cross or United Healthcare, Aetna, any of the the large groups, Cigna for them to be able to set a, a pricing or a standard. And, and it's a little bit beyond reproach at that point, because of course, if the federal government says this is the way we do it, well, that's very good cover for them to say, well, we're just following what the government says that they do. And everybody just sort of falls in a line there. And so these arbitrary pricings that are set in many of these scenarios uh, really just trickle down and out and in every every direction it's it's a it's a boulder in the middle of a pond rather than a pebble it just right exactly now the big question here is in in, in terms of the specifics that you're talking about is why medicare would have two different pricing systems for the same thing in the first place right i mean if you're talking about a you know a wellness check Right. Wellness check from to use to use the way that you frame this You get a wellness check from an independent, you know, family care physician. It's X. If you get a wellness check right. from a hospital um, affiliated primary care physician, 
it's X plus 62% or so for the same exact thing. And you would think that insurance companies, even government insurance <laughs> would, would rationally look at this. <laughs> You're already laughing. I know. I'm trying. I'm trying to make a little bit of a funny about this, but uh, you well, know, I would never suggest that the hospital lobby has that much control. But uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's let's not suggest that, Doctor Kuby. Let's not suggest that the hospital lobby is what's driving this policy because it makes no sense. It's the same Correct. act, but they're paying sixty percent, more than sixty percent more if it takes place in a hospital than they are if Correct. it takes. I mean, I mean that that to me is um, an absurdity, and especially well, if you're thinking about trying to save money <laughs> right. through, through the through these healthcare systems. Well, there are a variety of arguments that will be made, such as well, the types of populations that we have are more difficult, or we serve a lot of people for no cost at all, or a lot of things we don't get paid for. I mean, the reality is there are a lot of things I don't get paid for as well. Uh, I don't get any subsidy from the federal or state government for any of the services that I perform. You know, I there's nobody sending me a check for, you know, provision of different services or holding different emergency types of services or the like. And so I think those things... Uh, are, are in many ways overplayed. And again, if you're a larger hospital and you have the benefit of economy of scale, I mean, let's face it, you know, so if you're going to go and pick up, I don't know, simple provisions, let's say you're going to go pick up Coke, you know, is Coke cheaper at the gas station on the corner or is it cheaper at Sam's Club? Okay. Right. Economy of scale tends to drop prices. But that's not what we're seeing here because we are creating monopolies such that they can kind of charge in many ways whatever they feel like. And you are seeing an elimination of competition, certainly in the communities where we are. In the last several years, I have seen several different independent surgery subspecialties just vanish. You know, we used to have robust uh, urological services gone, general surgery services gone. Uh, ENT is now a very small group, very little obstetrics, gynecologic services, independent anymore. Um, uh, allergists, no, no more. Uh, rheumatology, no more. I mean, orthopedics, almost gone. I think the last major group in town uh, is, is probably going to be uh, absorbed. So we're seeing this consolidation. And when that happens and there are really no choices, uh, you're basically either, you're, you're really, as a consumer, you're forced to take uh, whatever choices or whatever option is more like it is, is stuck in front of you. Well, what we're talking about here are two, two problems, you know, sort of basic fundamental problems. What we're talking about here is price caps because that's how CMS operates. As right. you say, they just dictate the reimbursements. You guys have to live right. with them. Um, right. But it's 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 more insidious than that because what we're talking about is a two-tiered price cap. Right. One which deliberately benefits one type of provider over another type of provider for the exact same service. Right. And so you've got to think that if that's what is going on here, it is a deliberate 
um, attempt to eliminate independent operators in, in this market. It's a deliberate attempt to consolidate. And, you know, not to go too far astray, um, but I think you can see um, maybe a similar sort of thing going on with, you know, the new, you know, uh, pharma price caps that are, excuse me, I'm sorry, negotiations. <laughs> right, right. For the top 10 drugs, again, this is a CMS thing, right? The top, the, the top 10 most expensive drugs for CMS now are subject to negotiation. <laughs> and I use negotiation advisedly because the price for not negotiating is that the government will eventually take 187% of the gross sales of that product unless you negotiate. Um, I mean, that's that's built in. I think it actually goes up to 1,900% if you hold out long enough um, right. of all the sales, not just through CMS. And so, um, you know, they're trying to do the same thing with pharma and they're going to do it with certain drugs, not other drugs. And But eventually they're going to get to them all for the same reason. They want to have a smaller number of people in the markets because it's easier to control what they do. And exactly. So exactly. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's a lot of it as well. A lot of it is control. Um, and, and again, uh, whether or not the intentions are benevolent or malevolent, you know, that's a separate debate, but realistically, yeah. The challenge of a centralized unit is that it can't possibly respond and react to all the different people out there and all their independent, unique desires. You know, medicine is an art, uh, not an absolute science. And the reason is, is because everybody's different. You know, there are some, uh, you know, patients ask about surgery and it's like, well, you know, some people get exhilaration from jumping out of a perfectly good airplane, you know. I would not do that. Okay. So when you look at risks and benefits and you weigh those as an individual and should I, or shouldn't I have an operation, we're all going to look at that differently. But I think when you start centralizing it, a lot more of that is dictated to you. And certainly if we wind back the clock to Tuskegee and the atrocities that occurred to poor black Southern families who were in that experiment on yeah. syphilis back you know decades ago and then the belmont report that came from that you know we see that patient autonomy from an ethics perspective is sort of the, the primary pillar that we build that upon today where patients give informed consent you're supposed to go through risks benefits and alternatives of, of treatment but right. the more centralized things become you don't, you, your choices are removed from you to the point that you just follow an algorithm. And if there's an algorithm, I would argue that by its very nature, it's not ethical because the patient doesn't have a choice in the matter. And if they don't have a choice, how can they have autonomy? And, and we're removing that. And uh, I just, I just think there's not much more nefarious than that. Frankly, I, I mean, I've been a patient as well. I've had, you know, I've done a lot of weightlifting and stuff over the years not been very kind to this frame. And so I've had a few surgeries and realistically uh, I've always ultimately ended up outside the mega super medical complex or whatever you want to call it, because it's just, 
more value. I can get treated faster. I get better service. I get a more often than not a better surgeon. Uh, and I'm back into my business sooner to be able to get back to work and start seeing my own patients. So it's, it's, it's interesting the approach that they've taken. Yeah. Well, again, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into benevolent versus malevolent. There are people who genuinely feel that centralization is the only way to manage things. Right. I'm certainly not, I'm certainly not inclined to that. And I think the results speak for themselves. It's more expensive. It's, it's less, uh, it it gives you less autonomy. It gives you less choice, fewer choices, I should say. And, um, and generally speaking, you're going to end up with worse outcomes overall. If you're looking at the wide range of individuals, you know, the, the, hundreds of millions right. of individuals that are going through these systems. And um, so I, I don't want to end it without you getting a chance to talk about what you see as the solution to this part of the problem. That's what you wrote about it in Newsweek. Just give us, I, I'm going to have a link up uh, to the Newsweek article when we put this up, but tell sure. us briefly what your solution is to this. What does Congress need to do right now? Well, I mean... You know, for Congress, that that becomes a, a pretty challenging thing because it's it's such an overall uh, high-arching problem. I think eliminating these disparities should be something rather easily uh, agreed upon, right? So we have some greater philosophical items that that might take a lot longer to really drag out and dig through, but I think. The, the quick, easy things are to eliminate some of these obvious disparities where if a, a similar similar services should be similarly reimbursed in the sort of price control system that we have, uh, and that should be rather easily uh, dealt with. I think other things beyond that, we have onerous things in the tax codes for health savings accounts and the like allowing people to be able to use those types of funds for direct primary care and other options such as that would be very good. You know, that's one of the challenges we have as well, that we we have about one third of our percentage of dollars that we, so we spend maybe about 5% of our healthcare dollars on primary care. It's about 13% in Europe. Okay. So primary care, if you can see a doctor and spend actual time with that physician, uh, such as the direct primary care model provides, you get a lot more prevention, you get a lot more early treatment, and, and the primary care doctor actually has time to act, manage a variety of things instead of having to automatically send you to a specialist. You know, if in, in the current system, when the primary care doctor doesn't have that time, they've got to immediately send, they've got to immediately refer. And so now not only you have the primary care office visit, but then you have the cardiologist visit and they want their own whole new round of tests and studies. And so you end up having this balloon, which is, as I said, for every dollar of primary care, uh, there's 13 downstream. And so by being able to have somebody who's really invested in treating you, uh, I, I use a direct primary care physician myself. It's the best medical care I've I've really ever received because he's invested in my health and well-being. And so just 
taking down barriers again, where there's this disparity, where why would my health savings account be allowed to be spent on a hospital doctor, but not this private doctor over here in their system? Again, removing some of those things. And I, and I think beyond that, ultimately, just embracing markets. I think free markets uh, are beneficial because then people can decide live time what they want and don't want, and that drives value. If I'm not providing value for the people coming in my door, and then those people will cease to come here. If they are really viewing their responsibility as that of a consumer, then they will seek out that value. And, and frankly, in this industry, the most expensive is not always the best. You know, we don't, you know, if you're looking at cars, you say, oh, well, Rolls is expensive, a Volvo is X. It's not like the Volvo is a bad car, but, you know, why am I paying an extra $200,000 for this vehicle? It must be really wonderful somehow. And, and so we kind of equate that. That's not always the case with medical. And so I think looking for that value and, and, and embracing that is, is beneficial as well. Uh, folks in the Free Market Medical Association, the, the guys down in, in Oklahoma, Keith Smith and Jay Kempton that started the, that movement, there are a variety you know, uh, of the rest of us that have jumped into that movement. I, I think that concept is there. And, and in those situations, you know, any kind of tax advantages uh, where there's a disparity for self-funded, self-insured businesses, those would be places that would save an enormous amount of funds. Uh, all of this cost is escalating over time. I, I saw a statistic about a year ago. The average millennial in this country will spend one half of their lifetime earnings on health care. Yeah. That's untenable. By the time by the time you pay your taxes and then pay the health care, you've got like, you know, 20 cents on the dollar left. I mean, how does anybody ever have the opportunity to provide for their uh, children and their uh, children's future in the way that our parents were able to do so for us? Um, and and so I, I think the tide has got to has got to turn in some manner or another. And again, as I said earlier, I think freedom is generally a good idea and having options and choices for patients to be able to look out and decide and, and learn and, and choose uh, has the ability to generate more value than what we're seeing now. I completely agree. I think we've, I've been talking about that since 2009 as well. We took a wrong turn in 2009 and 2010. We should have been relying on markets, opening markets, removing third-party pricing um, uh, fogginess, uh, making pricing directly um, available to the end consumer, uh, uh, managing health accounts, using health accounts to help them manage that, to, to look at a competitive market and I, you know, I just got a right. couple of minutes. I, I mean, the, the, there were two examples of of actual, actually um, efficient healthcare markets, and the two examples were, um, you know, uh, LASIK surgery and right. uh, you know plastic surgery. I used to say eyes and boobs. You know, <laughs> those were the two right. because because there's no insurance companies involved. There, there's usually not any insurance companies involved, um, and so consumers had to make the decisions they saw the they had all the pricing signals they needed and they could choose between the Volvo and the Rolls-Royce um I would Well and those are and those are bottom up pricing instead of top down again like if you went to any hospital and said well how do you come up with a price of $218,000 for a lumbar fusion they couldn't tell you 
they would, they would, there is no person who'd be able to really sit down and tell you why that is. But from bottom up, when you're talking about LASIK, or if you're talking about breast augmentation, or even I do spine surgery, bottom up pricing is, I mean, obviously there's a lot more to it than, than say the average, but it's just like a lemonade stand. Okay, how do I figure out what to charge for my cup of lemonade? I've got water, I've got lemon juice, I've got sugar, I've got the cups, ice. I got to find a couple of cute kids to sit out there and <laughs> and, and and pedal the lemonade, right? But right. but I'm able to figure out my cost and then what do I believe I'm worth and that is my margin. And that's how you come up with a price. I mean, frankly, for a lumbar fusion, I, you know, when in our community in, in the Peoria area, the average self-funded, self-insured employer is paying about six times Medicare to the hospitals for a lumbar fusion. Okay, six times Medicare for that. Right. They could have the same exact procedure done at our facility, and I'm less than Medicare. And frankly, all I do is spine surgery. My facility is geared to do only spine surgery. I have the same staff every time, all the time. So all the things that you would want uh, in a in a highly technical environment, you know, consistent people, consistent equipment, you know, consistencies build efficiencies, less opportunity for error, and all of those kinds of things. Plus, you're not sitting in a giant building full of sick and dying people. Uh, you've got a a, a a, a suburban location where you don't have super bugs crawling all over the place, you know, creating infections and the like. And so those are advantages that are there. But if we don't allow opportunity for the independent types of folks to innovate and come up with models like that. And the reality is I, if, if I, even though I get paid less in that cash option than I do everything else, I still do better because 40% of my overhead is collections efforts. Right. If I don't have to spend all this time collecting, I can cut 40% off my cost and make the same exact margin today as I as I as I do tomorrow on the cash option. I don't think people realize how much red tape is there. I, I have several full-time people that all they do is bill. To put it into perspective, think if you had you know, seven cashiers at the grocery store for every person in the supermarket. Right. Your apples would probably be more pricey, you know, and that's, and that's, that's a challenge that we've got to get through is eliminating. And that, and Obamacare was very good at doing that too, placing another, you know, just tons of layers of administrative garbage on top. And that's also why we're seeing that increase in costs. We've seen a hundred percent increase in number of positions, in the last 30 years or so, we've seen a 3,000% increase in numbers of administrators in healthcare in that same time frame. So if you can't cover the cost of care, how are you going to cover the cost of care plus all those other people, none of whom I believe work for free? So right. this is the challenge. It is the challenge. Just in a nutshell, if, uh, if, if you go to government for a reform solution, the the solution is always going to be more government. <laughs> and that's right. That's the problem. Right. That's the problem. Right. 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 Well, uh, Dr. Richard Kuby, we're, we're really out of time here, but it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm hoping that we Pleasure. can get back when, when we, when other such um, issues arise, great talking with you. I'm just going to make sure that we promote your site, which is prairiespine.com. And when you spell prairie, 
Don't do it like I did in high school. There are two eyes in Prairie. P R A I. That is correct. R I E. Spine. That is correct. You'd be surprised how often that occurs. <laughs> oh man, I was. I never got it right in high school. I was always just the one eye. My my teacher would go, "How many times do I have to tell you this?" Like I can't, right. I just can't absorb right. this. But PrairieSpine.com is the website, Dr. Richard Kuby, and go to Newsweek. Read his op-ed in Newsweek. Uh, kudos to Newsweek for publishing that. Hopefully Congress is listening. Thank you very much for being with us today, sir. Thank you so much. I'd appreciate it. You have a great day. You do the same. <laughs>